Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Scott here. November generally brings with it cooler weather and earlier darkness compared to previous months this autumn. For the sky watcher, this can be both a blessing and a curse. A blessing because things happen early enough in the evening to enjoy with friends and family after dinner together. A curse because clothing layers make it somewhat uncomfortable. Still, there is much to see. My front door generally faces north, so that is where I usually begin my discussions of what is in each month's evening sky. A favorite star pattern with many people is the Big Dipper. From my glance, it is sitting right at the horizon, almost like a pot sitting on a stove top. Depending on your local horizon, the stars making its base may be obscured. But if you can see the three stars making up the handle of the Big Dipper, a bent handle at that, you need only look right of it to the two stars marking the front of the bowl to find a guide to the North Star, Polaris. A line connecting those two front stars and spanning about five to six times their separation should lead you to a not overly bright star pretty much about one-third the way up off the horizon. That would be Polaris. Facing Polaris, you are facing the direction north, and this can then give you the directions of the cardinal points east, west, and south from your location. All through the late summer and autumn months, planets have taken up residence in the southern sky. So those found there are easy to spot because they outshine most of the stars in the sky. So turning around to the south, I can begin to scan the southern sky. Two points of light catch my eye in the southwestern sky as darkness falls. These are the planets Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter is the brighter of the two. Though both are close in size, and Saturn has the addition of rings to reflect sunlight back to us, Jupiter is currently half the distance from us at present as Saturn, making it shine more brightly in the sky. The moon will shoot by both over the nights of the 18th and 19th of this month. But there is another reason to follow these two over the next two months. They will slowly draw closer, side by side, as we move into December. Over the period of December 16th to the 26th, they will draw together into a conjunction, a close grouping, before parting ways again. Jupiter is putting itself between us and Saturn over that time. As the time gets closer to this event, there may be a bit of buzz in the news about it. Let us just say that you heard it here first. The other eye-catcher visible in the southern sky is Mars. Mars has made its presence known in the early evening the last couple of weeks. It recently was in a configuration called opposition, when it would be in the opposite part of the sky as the sun, rising when the sun sets, setting when the sun rises. Now it is above the horizon by sunset and quite easy to spot once darkness comes. This is a somewhat short-time phenomenon because of a couple of reasons. We are somewhat close to Mars now, but orbit the sun faster than it does. 
That means we move away from it faster than we seem to from the more distant planets Jupiter and Saturn. Imagine driving and passing cars. Those we pass close to us fall behind quickly compared to how much slower distant objects seem to move past as we move forward. In addition, Mars is smaller than us, so as we increase our distance from it, its much smaller disk will noticeably send us much less light. So enjoy Mars in the evening sky while it is bright. Later in the year, the combination of circumstances I just mentioned will greatly affect how bright it appears compared to the stars in the sky. Mars and the moon will be paired in the evening skies of November 25th. Meteor showers are another easy phenomenon to watch with just one's eyes and a good one peaks in November. The Leonid meteor shower is active beginning November 6th and continues through the end of November. The peak activity is overnight on the evening of November 16th and early morning skies of November 17th. On this night, the moon will be about 5% full, making it a non-factor in terms of lighting up the sky to obscure them. The debris behind the Leonids are from a comet called Comet Temple Tuttle, left behind each time this comet returns to the inner solar system every 33 years. Yet it is not the fresh material we see from the comet, but rather debris from earlier returns. The expectation under dark skies away from city lights would be about 15 meteors per hour, and perhaps an occasional weak outburst when the Earth passes near a debris trail. Sometimes one can see bright meteors, some of which show persistent trains. When I plan one of these trips into the night to see a meteor shower, I take along a comfortable chair or even a cot to make it easier on the neck. A blanket on the ground would do, but there's always that chance of a damp dew settling in that you'd have to deal with if you use a blanket. But it is an option. Once comfortable, I simply scan the sky slowly, chatting with any others that want to share in the adventure. This is a good time to look for constellations that may be visible in the sky. If there are planets above the horizon, one can scan for those as well, all the while scanning the sky for meteors. Many is the time that I have been out with others, perhaps distracted by that planet or constellation I was looking for, and I heard someone shout, there goes one, and I was looking in the wrong direction. So a slow scan, noting what is above my head while not straying too far from the task at hand, is most successful in finding this elusive quarry. That was Bench Talk contributor J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. And although Scott teaches astronomy, his eyes are not always on the sky. Here is a contribution from Professor Miller about rising sea levels. If you're conscious about news about climate change and global warming, you have probably heard about how ice melting in Antarctica and Greenland are partially responsible for the rise in sea level experienced globally. I say partially because another contributor to sea level rise is the natural expansion of water as it is heated. I have done a simulated experiment with middle school students attending the Science Olympiad event hosted by my college using water in a container sitting on a hot plate. The result is quite measurable. But although Greenland and Antarctica are the most mentioned, they are by far not the largest overall contributors. In an article appearing in the NASA Global Climate Change News, June 20 edition, seven regions were identified. They are Alaska, the Canadian Arctic Archipelago, the Southern Andes, High Mountain Asia, 
the Russian Arctic, Iceland, and the Norwegian archipelago, Svalbard. The five Arctic regions accounted for the greatest share of ice loss. Sea level rise is one thing, impacting coastal regions in different ways. In an article appearing in the July 20th edition of the same newsletter, sea level rising is definitely a local phenomenon, affecting different coastlines in different ways. This is due to a collection of things including the thermal expansion of the ocean as it warms, runoff of meltwater from land-based ice sheets and mountain glaciers, and changes in water that is stored on land. And obviously, if you live far from the coast, as most of us do, these changes do not affect our everyday lives. But there are other consequences that the June 20 newsletter mentioned that may directly or indirectly affect every one of us, even if we do not live near the coast. As the ice melt continues to accelerate from all of the regions mentioned, it potentially affects agriculture and drinking water supplies in communities around the world. According to Isabella Velacogna, senior scientist at JPL and professor of Earth System Science at the University of California, Irvine, in the Andes Mountains in South America and in Highland Mountain Asia, glacier melt is a major source of drinking water and irrigation for several hundred million people. Stress on this resource could have far-reaching effect on economic activity and political stability. According to the U.S. Geologic Survey site entitled Surface Water Use in the United States, using information available in 2015, the nation's surface water resources, the water in the nation's rivers, streams, creeks, lakes, and reservoirs, are vitally important to our everyday life. The article goes on to point out that the main uses of surface water include drinking water and other public uses, irrigation uses, and for the use by the thermal electric power industry to cool electricity generating equipment. The majority of water used for thermal electric power, public supply, irrigation, mining, and industrial purposes came from surface water sources. Of all the water used in the United States in 2015, about 74% came from surface water sources. Groundwater sources accounted for the remaining 26%. The same website goes on to say that about 70% of the fresh water used in the United States in 2015 came from surface water sources. The other 30% came from groundwater. Surface water is an important natural resource used for many purposes, especially irrigation and public supply, supplying people with drinking water and for everyday uses. The conclusion that one can draw is that if there is an increase in ice melt, versus the replenishment of that same snow and ice from year to year due to increased temperatures in the atmosphere, then there will be a subsequent decrease in the available fresh water for everyday uses, both by individuals and by industries here in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world. The current party holding the White House and the Senate have a history of denying science, both when it comes to climate change and the current pandemic. Denying the scientific community in light of current circumstances is really nothing more than sticking one's head in the sand and claiming that either are going away or, more specifically on climate change, I don't believe it. Nero supposedly fiddled while Rome burned in that same sense of denial. Thanks, Scott. Well, who are these climate change deniers that Scott is referring to? 
well, I've got one candidate for you, and he literally is a candidate this year. It's U.S. Representative Thomas H. Massey of the Kentucky 4th District. Now, the 4th District basically covers northern Kentucky, but it does include towns that are quite close to Louisville, including Crestwood, Peewee Valley, Beckley, and Goshen. Now, Representative Massey does have a background in STEM. He holds a BS degree and an MS degree in engineering from MIT, and that's pretty impressive. But Massey also has the honor of being named in a blog known as Crazy Stupid Republican of the Day. He's been listed as Crazy Stupid Republican of the Day for at least five years in a row. Now, before I give you an audio taste of one of Massey's most groan-inducing exchanges, and it has been called by others the, quote, dumbest line of questioning in congressional history, let me tell you first a little bit more about this 2020 candidate for the House of Representatives in the 4th District in Kentucky. Did you know that Thomas H. Massey admits that he used to fly a Confederate flag at his, at his house? That was back in 2006. He once claimed that the nine victims of the Dylan Roof shooting at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, were to blame for their deaths because the church had, quote, disallowed guns, unquote. He's voted against the new version of the Violence Against Women Act, the Equality Act, the Dreamers Act. He voted against a resolution condemning anti-Semitism and against relief for the victims of both Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Harvey. Representative Thomas Massey has co-sponsored legislation to eliminate the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Department of Education, but argued for legalizing bump stocks after those were used in the Las Vegas hotel window slaughter of 58 concert goers back in 2017. And actually, Massey consistently votes against universal background checks on firearm purchases or closing the gun show loophole. Massey was one of 12 Republicans who voted against the reauthorization of the Zagroda Act, which provides health care to 9-11 first responders, and he voted against a resolution condemning Donald Trump for his racist statements that four people of color in the House, known as the Squad, should go back to the countries they came from, even though three of them were born in the United States. And every time there is a House resolution to criticize or punish Russia for human rights violations or international crimes, there is just one member of the House who will reliably vote against it. Yep, you guessed it. Representative Thomas Massey. Think Progress calls Massey, quote, Putin's favorite congressman. Well, here's that clip of Thomas Massey interrogating former Secretary of State and former Senator and former presidential candidate John Kerry. At the beginning of the clip, there's a mention of a kangaroo court. Well, in February of 2019, the White House's National Security Council announced that it was forming an adversarial climate control panel to reevaluate all the government publications about climate change. The chair of the National Security Council is Donald Trump himself, and his number one NSC advisor at that time was John Bolton. Now, apparently this panel isn't actually going to meet until after the 2020 election, but some 60 former prominent national security officials have sent a letter to the White House opposing this adversarial panel. 
And it's this panel that John Kerry called a kangaroo court. This clip you're going to hear is from an April 2019 hearing of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, and its goal was to examine the threats to national security from climate change. It starts with Thomas Massey speaking. Secretary Kerry, I want to read part of your statement back to you. Instead of convening a kangaroo court, the president might want to talk with the educated adults he wants trusted to fill his top national security positions. It sounds like you're questioning the credentials of the president's advisors currently, but I don't think we should question your credentials today. Isn't it true you have a science degree from Yale? What's that? Bachelor of Arts degree. Is it a political science degree? Yes, political science. So how do you get a Bachelor of Arts in a science? Well, it's liberal arts education and degree. It's a bachelor. Okay, so it's not really science. So I think it's somewhat appropriate that somebody with a pseudoscience degree is here pushing pseudoscience in front of our committee today. I want to ask you. Are you serious? I mean, this I, is really a serious me, happening here. You know what? It is, it is serious. You're calling the president's cabinet a kangaroo court. Is that serious? I'm not calling his cabinet a kangaroo court. I'm calling this committee that he's putting together a kangaroo committee. What, are you saying that he doesn't have educated adults there now? I don't know who it has yet because it's secret. Well, you said it in your testimony. Why would he have to have a secret analysis of climate change? Let me ask Why you. Why does the president ask, need to keep to the it secret? Of it. Let's get back to the science of it. But it's not science. You're not quoting science. I, I, well, you're the science expert. You got the political science degree. Look, let me ask you this. What's the consensus on parts per million of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere? About 406, 406 today. Okay, 406. Are you aware... 350 of being the level that scientists have said is dangerous. Okay, are you aware? 350 is dangerous. Wow. Are you aware that since mammals have walked the planet, the average has been over 1,000 parts per million? Yeah, but we weren't walking the planet. It, it, it's, um, let me just share with you that we now know that definitively at no point during the least the past 800,000 years has atmospheric CO2 been as high as it is today. You, you go when back. I was in the South Pole, when I, was, I wasn't at the South Pole, when I was in McBurdo, we couldn't get to the South Pole because of the weather, but I was given a vial of air which said on it, cleanest air in the world. It was 401.6 parts per million. That is 50 parts per million already over what the, scientists say. The, the reason you chose 800,000 years ago is because for 200 million years before that, it was greater than, the, than it is today. And I'm going to submit there, for the record. Yeah, but there weren't human beings. I mean, there was a different world, folks. We didn't have 7 well, billion people. So how did it get to 2,000 parts per million if we humans weren't here? Because there were all kinds of geologic events happening on Earth which spewed Did up geology up. stop when we got on the planet? Mr. Chairman, I, I, this is just not a serious conversation. Your, your testimony is not serious. <laughs> I agree. When you, can't, when you can't answer the question, that's the best answer you got. I, I did I, answer. I submit for the record uh, an article called The CO2 Deficit. Thank you. That was Kentucky Representative Thomas Massey grilling Senator John Kerry about climate science. And oh, by the way, the liberal arts actually does include the arts, the humanities, 
and the sciences. And by the way, our current CO2 concentration is 412 parts per million, not 406 parts per million. That's because it's been 18 months since this hearing. And the article that Massey submitted was a three-page ditty with lots of photos on it that was not actually published in a journal or a magazine, as far as I can tell. It was written by someone with coal industry ties that says that our current CO2 concentration is actually too low and that increasing our CO2 levels from the 280 parts per million that it was in pre-industrial times to now over 400 parts per million, quote, that's the best thing we've ever done for the planet, unquote. (laughs) Well, if you want to hear a pretty thorough history of how the greenhouse effect was discovered by scientists, and that story goes back to the 1700s, just listen to our show of November 26, 2018. Check out that story. November 26, 2018. Now let's move to a brighter topic. Birds. We've been given permission to play this five-minute story about bird watching by Leslie the Bird Nerd, who I believe is located in Newfoundland, Canada. Leslie the Bird Nerd has a YouTube channel called Leslie the Bird Nerd, and it's really quite a popular site. There are more than 200 videos there all about birds. We'll provide a link to these glorious videos on our Facebook and SoundCloud pages. Well, why don't we listen to one of them now? This one is called, Did You Know Watching Birds is Good for Your Mental Health? Did you know? Watching birds is good for your mental health. According to a study from this year led by University of Exeter, if you have more birds, shrubs, and trees in your neighborhood, you are less likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, and stress. And people who work in offices can reap these benefits too just by looking under their window and watching birds. Dr. Cox, who led the study along with colleagues from the University of Maryland, the University of Queensland in Australia, and the British Trust for Ornithology, surveyed mental health in about 270 people from different ages, incomes, and ethnicities. What the team discovered was that lower levels of depression, anxiety, and stress were associated with the number of birds people could see in the afternoon through a variety of sociodemographic factors. It didn't matter what birds the people seen, be it a robin or a crow or whatever, just as long as they were seeing many birds from their windows in the garden or in their neighborhood. It's been discovered from other studies that most people aren't able to identify different species of birds, which seems to imply that it's not specific birds, but just the interacting with birds in general that provides well-being. The team also discovered that people who spend less time outdoors than they are used to are more likely to report they feel anxious or depressed. The reason for this is thought to be because people generally feel more relaxed and connected to nature when looking at birds and trees. Dr. Daniel Cox said, This study starts to unpick the role that some key components in nature play for our mental well-being. The study revealed that of the five neighborhood nature characteristics tested, vegetation cover and afternoon bird abundances were positively associated with a lower prevalence of depression, anxiety, and stress. 
It seems that having birds around the home and just nature in general has the potential to make people feel better, thus in turn creating cities that are healthier, happier places to live. Researchers believe that although the causes and drivers of poor mental health are diverse, this study suggests that even low levels of key components of neighborhood nature can be associated with better mental health, providing promise for preventative health approaches. I want to add to this with my own experience. I can say for 100% certain that birds really are good for your mental health. I've suffered with depression and anxiety off and on much of my life. However, six years ago, when I stepped outside to go for a walk on one late February winter afternoon, after a terrible winter filled with storms and a lot of depression and anxiety, I was lifted almost immediately when I seen the flicker of a bird. The way I felt that day after seeing all the birds that I seen, chickadees, woodpeckers, gray jays, was completely void of any anxiety or depression. I went home that evening and was already looking forward to the next day so I could go out again, and that I did, over and over, right up to this very point of my life right now. That was the driver for my obsession with birding. I even acquired many feathered friends from doing so, and one heck of an incredible experience. Still to this day, I feel better and more relaxed when I see birds, and the more the better. There is one particular event that stands out in my mind the most, which occurred two years ago when my family were given the dreaded news that we were about to lose a very dear loved one to brain cancer. And my only ease and comfort from the increasing levels of anxiety and stress was when I went out in the woods for a walk to interact with my birds. Almost immediately I would feel a great calm and relaxation. So to anyone going through a very difficult time, I say go out and watch the birds. It may not take your troubles away, but it will almost certainly lower your stress and anxiety, thus probably helping you to cope better. Thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed the video and I hope it helps a lot of people. Happy birding! That was Leslie the Bird Nerd in her informative YouTube video called did you know watching birds is good for your mental health? There'll be a link on our Facebook and SoundCloud pages. I think with this coronavirus pandemic in such full force and national politics overwhelming the senses, I need this. I'm going to go out and watch some birds myself. But before grabbing your binoculars, sit back and first listen to a poem written specifically for this episode it's by published author and regular Bench Talk contributor, Leslie Moise. It's called Interspecies Communication. Interspecies Communication. I'd heard that birds recognize the person who fills their feeders, that crows befriend a person who does a crow a kindness even generations after that crow dies. I never expected it to happen to me. Chickadees, goldfinches, tufted titmice, nuthatches, and various woodpeckers swarm my feeders when I take them out in the morning. But I thought the birds recognized the feeders, not me. And then, the other day, a male cardinal fluttered against my window. He's fighting his reflection, I thought. Then I realized the second-story deck shadow darkened the glass and wood for hours. 
no reflection. He chipped, 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 landed on the sill, glared into my room, glared at me, giving me the avian cursing out of the century. Get out here, you. Bring my bird feeder. At my desk, I swayed in shock, in pleasure. The cardinal chipped again. Now, you lazy woman. Giggling, weeping, I fetched the black oil sunflower feeder, hurried outside, hung it, danced back inside. By the time I returned to my desk, he was eating, ignoring me, but I knew he sees me, recognizes me. They all do. That was Leslie Moise reading her poem, Interspecies Communication. Thanks, Leslie, and thanks to you all for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. See you next week!